when I was on retreat um, earlier this month, I had a, um, uh, the, it was a retreat with um, the nuns from Aloka Vihara. And a couple of you were here Thursday night, so you 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 heard this talk. Um, but it was with the nuns from Aloka Vihara up in Northern California, Aya Ananda Bodhi and Aya Santachita and Venerable Dhammadipa. And they uh, talked about basically the four the four foundations of mindfulness, but they illustrated the teachings with the poems from the book The First Free Women. The poems of the uh, the early Buddhist nuns, which is a new, a fairly new, I think it just came out earlier this year, a new translation of these old, old texts, which are one of the oldest collections of, um, of uh, women's writing, poetry in particular, but writing um, in general. So they date, mostly date to the time of the Buddha, and they're included in the Pali Canon. And so I wanted to talk about, read some of those poems tonight, and uh, talk about um, the nuns in this tradition, the bhikkhunis. I'm, this is, uh, my, my lineage is the Thai forest lineage. And um, uh, uh, so I think the history is very interesting. Are, are any of you familiar with the history of the bhikkhunis? Um, I think I'm sure some of you are. I know Leslie, you are because you're so um, you're you've studied uh, a lot with uh, I, uh, Ama, so Amatana Santi, who is a bhikkhuni, uh, and so. I think it's really important, and it also actually is part and parcel of the world we live in today because. Pretty much everything is relevant, and the, the the story of the bhikkhunis is very relevant. I love the teachings of these this this translation because it's very accessible. Aya Nanda Bodhi talked about earlier translations of these poems, and she called them stodgy. She's British, so she said it in her very British accent. They're quite stodgy, and um, and I'm not a huge poetry fan anyway, so they they weren't accessible to me but these are incredibly accessible and they talk about these women's um, experiences with the Dharma I mean one of the one of the poems is from the Buddha's um, aunt who was who raised him because his mom died right after he was born and his father had married these sisters so his aunt raised him and uh, uh, and other other women at that time who were followed the path of the Buddha and the Buddha was a bit radical in ordaining women and saying, yeah, it's okay for women to be on the spiritual path. And so what has happened in the Thai forest tradition or the tradition I'm in is about no women have been ordained, fully ordained uh, with the full uh, benefit of what that entails for about a thousand years in this tradition. And it's because they said the lineage died out. And there's something in the, in the, in the, I don't know if it's in the Pali Canon, the suttas that says it, it has to be continued. It, there has to be a, a direct transmission. And it, there's been some scholarly research in the last 30, 40 years that says actually it hasn't died out. It's moved. It, the, 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 the Dharma transmission from nuns moved to out of India and into 
um, uh, uh, China and Japan and um, Korea and as well as into Sri Lanka and Thailand and Burma and um, those places. And it hasn't died out in, in, in China or Korea or, Thai, or Taiwan or, or Vietnam. Nuns are still fully ordained in those countries, yet the, um, there's not allowed to be ordained fully in the other Southeast Asian countries. And so the nuns in those, um, the, the Thai forest lineage is from Thailand, which says, no, 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 you can't, you can't be fully ordained. And it's, it's basically religion. It's basically patriarchy. And it's this this codification of um, and this rigidity of holding on to fixed ideas of saying no you cannot be and to be a, 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 a not fully ordained nun is pretty crappy um, in monasteries women who may have been nuns for decades have to take um, are subservient, subordinate to 10-year-old boys who just took robes yesterday. It's really extraordinary. It's really extraordinary. It's incredibly um, misogynistic and patriarchal and uh, not nice. Um, and uh, a few years ago, um, there's a book called, there's a book called um, uh, Time to Stand Up by Tanisara. And she was, uh, she was a nun. She ordained in 1979, and she stayed a nun for about uh, 12 years. And she was in the monasteries, two mon she was in this monastery in England, Chithurst, and there's another monastery in, in the UK called Amravati, where a lot of these nuns were living. And they were starting to say, you know what, there's, there's something, we need to start taking care of ourselves. We need to start, um, um, I don't want to say pressing for, but really saying we need to re-examine this, this ordination thing. And the monks became very um, annoyed, as happens when the people in leadership feel that their power is being threatened, they push back. I think we're kind of seeing that in our country today. Um, there's this pushback. You had a black president, and so that, you know, there's a make, make America great again, which means, like, make it white again. That's my interpretation, but... I kind of think that's probably a very common, um, common um, interpretation. So uh, there was a lot of pressure applied and uh, really incredible rules put into place um, that were really quite um, draconian. And Tanisara documents that all in this book. It's really extraordinary. And I would, uh, if you have a chance, um, 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 maybe Google that. Um, I'm sure you can find the story of it. And a lot of the nuns were disheartened and a lot of, a few of them disrobed and some of them left. Um, and I think right around that time, it was not that long ago, you know, Leslie, you can correct me if, if the time frame, but I think it was like maybe 10 years ago, 10 to 10-ish uh, years ago that this all went down. And a lot of the nuns left. That's when the nuns... Um, came and, and they moved to Northern California and they eventually was supported in establishing a local Vihara, the monastery up there. There's another monastery in, um, in the Bay area. 
Um, and, and so there's a lot of, uh, and there's a lot of support for bhikkhuni ordination. In fact, bhikkhunis are being ordained in, in many countries. Um, there's a monk in, I can't remember his name, Ajahn Brahma, I can't remember, it's a long name, in Australia, who's ordaining, um, ordaining nuns. And um, they had an ordination ceremony in Los Angeles a couple of years ago, I think last year, beginning of last year. I was in, I went out to, um, there's a teeny weeny little monastery, Vihara, uh, some nuns living out near Joshua Tree here in the desert in Southern California. And I spent a few days out there last year with a nun who had come to a retreat I taught. I was out there two years ago. Um, Ayavimala, who's, uh, she's, she's originally Dutch, but she's building a monastery right now in um, Belgium. And she sends me pictures of herself in her robes holding power tools. It's great because she's actually building the monastery. I mean, not by herself, but she's doing a lot of the work. It's great. She's got goggles on. and Anyway, um, she was ordained by this monk in Australia. And um, the monastery out in um, Joshua Tree, Mahapajapati, which is named after the Buddhist stepmother, aunt, um, the, the abbess out there is Burmese, and she and this other woman are the only two, if I recall, the only two women from Burma who have been ordained. And the other one went back to Burma and was thrown in jail because it's illegal to be fully ordained. And she eventually disrobed because it was just too horrific to, to, to live in that way with that oppression. So it hasn't been an easy road, but the good news is, uh, as I said, there's, some, there's been some scholarly research into this saying, no, th there, this tradition has been um, sustained. It hasn't been um, cut off. And so there are actual, it's okay to ordain these women. And so supporting bhikkhunis is really important. That's why it was really sweet I got to sit with them because they're so wise. One of the, one of the arguments is that they're not smart. Women aren't smart enough to be um, awakened, to reach enlightenment. They just don't have it. it just, we just ain't got it. Um, so hopefully you'll be reborn as a male then you can reach enlightenment. I mean, that's, yeah, Leslie. I have a, qu I have a question. Uh -huh. Do you know whether Tan Jeff has changed his position well, on this at all? Last I heard, he was opposed to it. That's two years okay. ago. Um, I, haven't, I haven't been in contact with him since, um, but two years ago, he was, like, opposed to it. Like Ajahn Sumedho, who was the abbot of Amravati, was very opposed to it. Ajahn Amaro, I believe, is very opposed to it. Yet Bhikkhu Bodhi is very supportive. Uh, Bhikkhu Analio, who's this brainiac, he's done a lot of the scholarly, scholarly research. He's very supportive of it. So there's a lot of monks who are supportive of it. It's just as with any change to the, the, the rigid paradigm, it takes time takes time and it's not easy so just being aware of this is important and um, Aya Ananda Bodhi was uh, worked with the the man who translated this poems into this recent um, recent edition in fact he stayed at Aloka Vihara for the last four months he was working on the poems and so she wrote she wrote the foreword to it and she said um, she said they were like a transmission of the heart and they touched her. These, this, this translation touched her and changed her in a way that she was 
it was extraordinary. And she said, at times it has been a struggle to make my way as a Buddhist nun. Both the support and the modeling that elders can give has been missed. Much of our history and the legacy we receive through the Pali Canon can be pretty tough. Nuns are often framed as being a problem. Simply by fulfilling our aspiration to give ourselves wholly to the path of awakening. It's challenging when a pure-hearted intention is met with opposition within the very community to which you belong, just because of your physical form. There were times when the challenges and misunderstandings felt insurmountable. For a while, all of the nuns in the community where I lived were being publicly admonished for not understanding the teachings, for being overly identified with our gender, and for not being sufficiently grateful. I would sit and feel the impact of that while staying strongly connected with my clear intention to practice for awakening. Um, so that's what the, the reality of the situation is for a lot of these people in, who really want to choose to follow this path. And I have... Um, uh, uh, I asked this nun, this this friend of mine, this nun who lives in Belgium. I said, knowing this going in, because this was not new. Why? How did you? How did you? Um, how could you reconcile taking? You know, moving into a community where you knew you would be sub, sub um, you know, second class citizen. And she said, I really didn't think it would be that bad. You know, it's just that a little bit of delusion. It couldn't be that bad, and it was. And so, but luckily things are changing. You know, like, like she says, scholars are gradually unearthing the less prejudiced history of these courageous women. And she said, this is a transmission of the heart. And um, I forget what I was going to say about that, but um, the... Anyway, oh, I know what, what it is, that, that um, what this, these poems offer is a connection to these early women. So the scholars are unearthing evidence that says, no, this, this, this lineage has not been broken, and it's okay to ordain these women. And these poems offer a connection to our spiritual ancestors. You know, a few weeks ago, I was talking about taking refuge and taking refuge in the Sangha. And the Sangha is our community. And this, it's also taking refuge in the millions of people who have practiced this path for these thousands, thousands of years. And these women, their voices are now coming across the centuries in a way that is accessible to 21st century people, I believe. Uh, and so this is a connection to our spiritual ancestors, that lineage that hasn't been broken. It's really lovely. Um, there are also the, the Pali word is terigata and I, gata is like collection poetry and teri is the feminine of elder or senior. It's like terra, there's a terra gata, terra is male, teri is, is female in the binary, um, division of Pali. And so the nuns call them the Terries, the voices of the Terries, which I think is really cute. Anyway, so I wanted to read some of these and just offer them and, and offer them as so relevant to our experience today. Some of you who sit with me in the morning because I do the morning meditation, I've been reading some of these over the last um, week or two. Um, and so I just want to read some of them and, and just listen. 
I, I want to say one more one more piece from the forward, talking about who these women are. Um, here you'll find the incomparably beautiful, the incomparably sad, those born into abject poverty, and those born into limitless wealth, the tired wives of arranged marriages, and the desperately in love, young women who sell their bodies, daughters left orphaned or abandoned, grandmothers who spend a lifetime caring for others, mothers who watch their children die and wonder how they can possibly go on, the warriors, the sages, the earth mothers, those who refuse to do as they're told, those who refuse to remain silent, those who refuse to give up, their voices are all here. That's what's captured in these words. So the first, the first, the, I, when I was, when I was going through these the other day, I was, I was reading them. There's 73 of them. There's not a ton. There's 73 of them. And I was reading through and trying to pick out some ones that I wanted to share. And then I want, because the way my brain works is, okay, let's categorize them. And so I kind of categorized them, whether that works or not. Um, so did anybody have a question before I, before I move on to the poems? Uh, I just wanted to mention that mm -hmm. there's that lovely movie also, The Buddha's Forgotten Nun, mm. that if people have not seen that, that actually talks a little bit about what's happened and interviews a bunch of nuns. So if right. this topic speaks to you. Thank you. Thank you. And there's a, there's a, a, a prior, um, uh, a prior um, edition by Susan Murcott called the first Buddhist women, women. And she also, her, uh, she gives a lot of, the story of the people, the women that are written about, the, who write the poems. So it's the historical. She's culled a lot of the, as much information as can be gotten from the canon. We don't know a lot about all of them, but we know a lot about some of them. So, um, but the nun, what is it again, Leslie? The nuns, Buddhist forgotten nuns? Okay, cool. Thank you. Yeah, that's right. I haven't the seen that. The Buddhist forgotten nuns. So I wanted to just read a couple of these I, um, and just let them land. And this first one, because I wanted to organize them, this first group I'm calling the promise of the path. So what the path, the path, the Buddhist teachings, the path, the Eightfold Path, what it promises us. Uh, and these are very short poems. They're very short, uh, which may be another reason why I really like them. Uh, Fill yourself with the Dharma. When you are as full as the moon burst open, make the dark night shine. Fill yourself with the Dharma. And when you're as full as the moon burst open and make the dark night shine. And I think that points to the, the, the promise, this awakening, the luminosity, the spaciousness, the just the expansiveness, the, the bursting open of when you're full of the Dharma. And this is another one that I, I kind of read all the time. I'm sorry, the, the titles are the names of the, the nuns. And that was Puna, which means full. And this one is Bhadra, which means lucky. You always considered yourself lucky because things seemed to work out the way you wanted. Now luck has a different meaning. 
lucky to be walking a path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each present moment, regardless of how things work out or don't. So that's this 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 grace that of having found a path that not needing things to work out the way we think they should work out. But the path that finds peace in the arising and passing away of each moment, which is what we talk about when we in the in the meditation, just be with the arising and passing. That's what that's the nature of the world. So be with it without clinging, without pushing away. So and then this other one that I um, truly vira hero, truly strong among those who think themselves strong, truly unafraid among those who hide their fear, a hero among those who talk of heroes. Don't be fooled by outward signs, lifting heavy things, or picking fights with weaker opponents and running headfirst into battle. A real hero walks the path to its end, then shows others the way. So the hero isn't the one that's all about the show, punching and kicking. It's the one who actually stays the course. Because this is not easy. I mean, if this were easy, the, you know, there'd be billions of people doing this. And we'd all be enlightened and there'd be, you know, rainbows and lollipops. But it's not easy. You know, it's so easy to be called out and called called into this other needing to prove ourselves, however that looks, whatever that that looks like. So, and then then my next my next division is the practice itself. I just made this all up, by the way. These divisions. So another tisa tisa was one woman, and that means the third. And here's another tisa, another third. Find your true home on the path. Find the path right here in the center of your own heart. If you keep searching in the past and searching in the future, you will search and search, but your searching will never end. It's all right here. And you hear that over and over again in this, in this teaching. It's not tomorrow. It's not yesterday. Those don't exist. But we keep getting caught up in them because we're worried about tomorrow. We're worried about yesterday. But that's not where the peace is. The peace is right here in the center of your own heart, which I really like. I like that sweet bit about the heart. And this was upasama, calm. This is also what the practice is. How do you cross the flood? You cross calmly. One step at a time, feeling for stones. How do you cross the flood, my heart? You cross calmly, one step at a time, or not at all. And again, that's the practice. Being with what is. One breath at a time. That's how we hold it. One step at a time, or not at all. Because we want to jump ahead. We want to do it all. Anybody here else have, want to get it all taken care of? I want to figure it all out. Just get it done. Get it over with. But that's not how it works. It's like, what? Okay, one breath. What's happening right now? Because when you take the time to be with, 
it changes. It does things you didn't expect because the fixed mind, the fixed ideas thinks it's going to do this. But when you're with it, you see how it actually moves. It moves in a different way. It moves in a different direction. So. If you ever have any questions or anything, please don't hesitate to jump in. Okay. And this one I can relate to. Visaka, many branches. You say you're too busy, that there's never enough time to take care of, take care of whatever, excuse me, let me start again. You say you're too busy, that there's never enough time. Take care of whatever you have to take care of. Then sit. Be honest. Do you really think you're going to live forever? Just do what you need to do, then sit and be honest. You know, that, that again, that doing, accomplishing. One more thing, you know, I do this, this, this uh, facilitate a year to live group um, fairly regularly. And it's really about, it's all about letting go. Sit, be, you know, be, let go. And then this next category that I made up is called that this stuff is really modern. I mean, I felt these are very modern, too, because they're very, for me, very accessible. They speak to a lot of what's going on, but these seem to be even more so in my mind. Oh, this one especially. Abhirupanda, Abhirupananda, delighting in beauty. Haven't you spent enough time comparing your hair and your clothes and your face to the hair and the faces and the clothes of those around you? See the body for what it is. Real beauty is in the clear, open light of the non-judgmental heart. I think that speaks to today so loudly. So loudly, we haven't you spent enough time comparing your hair, your clothes, your face to everything else? And we live in a culture that tells us we could just be a little bit better. You could just, you know, you can order it all online. And by the time the pandemic is over, you'll be fixed, you know. And but you'll never we'll never be fixed. because We're not broken, but we'll never come. You know, if there's the, that gate is always moving. That that goalpost is always moving. We'll never get there. And so the invitation is, again, to let go and be, be at peace with what is. And I see this, 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 this jumps out at me for, in two ways. One, there's the stories our mind tells us that, you know, we look around and it's like, oh, I need that. I got to, I got to be over there. I got to be that, that, oh, that hair, that face, those teeth, whatever. And then the second piece that jumps out at me around this is, is really, about the first foundation of mindfulness, which is the, the awareness of the body and the awareness of, of, of the, the impermanent nature of the body. And when you really spend time contemplating that, and in the first foundation, there's the, the 32 parts of the body. So you recognize there's, oh, there's skin and there's flesh and there's, there's, there's bones and there's nails and there's teeth and there's pile and there's, excuse me, bile and pus and urine and all these things, when you reflect on that, and or you reflect on the the um, you know the body, the death, dying, decay, 
uh, go sit in a, a cemetery or the monks sit in charnel grounds. You see the impermanent nature of the body, so this fuss is meaningless. We're all connected. We're all the same. We're, you know, we're all gonna, we're all gonna, we are all subject to the, uh, uh, I am, all, we are all of the nature to get sick, grow old, and die. Not all of us grow old, but all of us die. Oh, hi, Prudence. So cute. <laughs> So sweet. Um, so we're all of that nature. So that really is a great equalizer. It's a tremendous equalizer. So this is a, I love this poem for that teaching. Um, let's see. This one is called Another Utama. And Utama means great woman. So here's another great woman. The entire path. And all you will ever need to walk it, you will find inside. So the Buddha taught me. Once I took a closer look, all the running around started to seem a little silly. Things changed so quickly. By the time I got anywhere, I'd be someone else. You are your mother. You are your daughter. One moment gives birth to the next. What we do is who we become. What we do is who we become. Again, it's a poem pointing to that chasing. Chasing, chasing, chasing doesn't work. By the time you get there, you're someone else. Or if you think it's better over there, wherever you go, there you are. So it, it works both ways. You know, um, what we want changes. And, and there's no fixed self anyway because it's all these causes and conditions. Um but what we do is who we become. And that, that's that beautiful teaching around intention, that setting our mind. That's in the Dhammapada as well. Mind follows mind. We have agency, but we have to move in a wise way. We have to set an intention to live in a way that doesn't cause harm and is beneficial and kind and loving and is on this path of awakening and moves, moves towards that liberation. And mind... Um, intention leads to action, which leads to habit, which leads to character, which leads to destiny. I love that. And it all starts in the mind. And then and, and the mind, our actions follow the mind. So really let go of that chasing and be present and be, be um, deliberate in how you respond rather than reacting. So that's also a really wise, uh, wise, wise uh, uh, seeing. Let's see. Everybody okay with me doing a couple more poems? Okay. Thank you. Okay, this one. And I haven't forgotten, Maggie, that you want me to give you a copy of this one. So I just haven't done it yet. Um, Ubiri, the Earth. How many days and nights did I wander the woods calling your name? Jiva, my daughter. Jiva, my heart. Late one night, finally exhausted, I fell to the ground. Oh, my heart, I heard a voice say. Eighty-four thousand daughters, all named Jiva, have died and been buried here in this boundless cemetery you call the world. For which of these Jivas are you mourning? 
Lying there on the ground, I shared my grief with those 84,000 mothers, and they shared their grief with me. Somehow I found myself healed, not of grief, but of the immeasurable loneliness that attends grief. My sisters, those of you who have known the deepest loss, as you cry out in the wilderness, just make sure you stop every so often to listen for a voice calling back. I think I find this one so moving that it really captures the essence of grief and then also the 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 universality of loss. You know, and when we reach out and, and connect, it doesn't diminish the grief but it may diminish the loneliness. You don't have to carry this, which is again, that beauty of community, finding those people you can share with. You know, that, that points to that one, um, one story of the woman who lost her child and was running around just carrying the body, just crying, trying to get someone to bring the child back to life. And when she got to the Buddha, the Buddha said, you know what, go to the village and go to each house and find me, bring me a mustard seed from the house that has never had a loss, has not had a death. And she went and she knocked on every door and then she realized that everyone experiences loss. You know, it's the humanity, it's the first noble truth. That's the first foundation of mindfulness. Where am I? No, it's the first noble truth. There is suffering in this world, aging death you know we are all of the nature to die but the mind is so good at denial and delusion so to really come into connection with this and that shared experience of all beings it's really quite extraordinary it doesn't lessen the pain there's the grief there but there's an ease that comes with it that I have experienced um, I have absolutely experienced that um, And here's one that speaks to that, uh, a little bit of that um, uh, misogyny. It's Soma, happiness. He said, how could a woman who knows more than how to cook, clean, and make babies possibly reach the further shore? Which is what, what enlightenment is often called, the further shore. How can um, she possibly reach the further shore? on the way to which so many good men have drowned or turned back. So how can a woman, who all she knows how to do is make babies and cook and clean, how can she get to the further shore when so many men have failed? I said, the mind is neither male or female. When directed towards the arising and passing away of all things, it easily penetrates this mass of darkness. Be serious. What's a few inches of meat compared to the immeasurable reaches of the liberated mind? Meaning, a penis has nothing to do with it. So, I love, I love the reality of these, these poems. So, it's like, it's, a, this, it's available to everyone. This awakening, getting to the further shore, is available to awakening. The mind is neither male nor female. It's absolutely non-binary. 
You know, when directed towards the arising and passing of all things, it easily penetrates the mass of darkness. So, I have a couple more, but I also want to allow time for us to have some conversation and to break you into groups. So let me let me just look at these last couple of poems and see which one I want to kind of end with. Okay, I like this one. Vijaya, Victor. When everyone else was meditating, I'd be outside circling the hall. Finally, I went to confess. I'm hopeless, I said. The elder nun smiled. Just keep going, she said. Nothing stays in orbit forever. If this circling is all you have, why not make the circling your home? I did as she told me and went on circling the hall. If you find yourself partly in and partly out, if you find yourself drawn to this path and also drawing away, I can assure you, you're in good company. Just keep going. Sometimes the most direct path isn't a straight line. Just keep going. And Maureen, I noticed you have the tattoo. I love you. Keep going. Leslie, do you have that also? No, but yeah, I am right now. It's like this right now. It's like this. So yeah, just keep going. That's it. We think it's supposed to be a certain way. I love it. It's like I keep going in circles. That's your practice. What's it feel like to go in circles? What's it feel like? That's the practice. That's a practice. So these these poems are also incredibly practical, incredibly practical. So. Um, I, I, I recommend this book highly. It's, they're sweet. These poems are sweet and accessible and can talk to our experience today. So, um, anyway, that, that's what I have. And I'd love to, I'd love to, uh, if anybody has questions, I'm happy to answer questions, but I'd also be happy to, uh, throw you into a couple of groups. Thank you for visiting Undefended Dharma. These teachings are freely offered. However, if you would like to make a donation to help support the technology that makes these podcasts possible, please visit marystancavage.org backslash support. Thank you.